PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy. I've missed talking to you the last couple months and I'm delighted to be back to you today to talk about the May issue of PTJ. Before I get talking about that, I'd like to make a couple of announcements. One is please consider coming to the next conference, which will be held in National Harbor in Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. PTJ has a number of sessions available, including the Rothstein Roundtable, Look at the PTJ website for this information. And Lynn Snyder-Mackler will be giving the Macmillan Lecture, which I'm sure will be an exciting event as well. I just returned from the World Congress for Physiotherapy or Physical Therapy that was held in Singapore. It was a spectacular congress. This was Marilyn Moffat's end of term. She's been the president of the World Congress for the last eight years, and she's really done a spectacular job putting WCPT on the map. The next congress will be held in South Africa in two years, so look for the dates. It will be held in July. And consider going. I think your perspective on global health really changes when you're there with physiotherapists and physical therapists from around the world. Now, on to the May issue. I wrote in the editorial about new and leaving editorial board members. Both Janet Freeberger and Sally Westcott are so busy with their own activities that they had to step down from the editorial board. Both have been absolutely spectacular. Janet helping us with health services research and Sally with really helping lead the pediatric issues extremely well. These two were not replaced by, but new persons have come on to the editorial board, including Mary Gennady, who's at the University of Hartford, and she will take on some of the pediatric literature. And then Arlene Greenspan from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and Beth Rash, who works in the Clinical Research Center at the National Institutes of Health. Both Arlene and Elizabeth, or Beth, will be helping with health services research. So Linda Resnick won't be abandoned with Janet's move back to her research. So as I've always said, the editorial board is absolutely spectacular. Their expertise continues to amaze me, and I hope that you appreciate them as much as I do. Now, on to the May issue. This is an international issue, which is so nice coming back from WCPT to see this issue in place. So we are going to see that we have authors from the Netherlands, from France, from Spain. It's just wonderful, as well as the wonderful authors from the United States. The first paper is entitled, Does Perturbation-Based Balance Training Prevent Falls? This is a systematic review and meta-analysis of preliminary randomized controlled trials. And the authors are Avril Mansfield and her colleagues who come from the Toronto Rehab Institute in Toronto, Sunnybrook Research Institute in Toronto, Departments of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Toronto, and the School of Physical Therapy, Western University, London, Ontario, Canada. A Canadian 
team talks to us about perturbation-based training. Now, again, they gave a really nice definition, and I'm going to read it to you just so that we're all on the same page. Perturbation-based balance training is intentional application of repeated postural perturbations that cause a loss of balance over the course of a training program. And the goal of that perturbation is to improve whole body reactive balance. Most of this research on perturbation training has been done in a laboratory, and the authors were really interested in seeing if there was a translation from training in a traditional research laboratory into daily life. So the study did a very nice job trying to find articles that were related to this question, and I encourage you to look at the paper. It's really extremely thoughtful in its discussion. Bottom line is there is a likelihood of perturbation training reducing the number of falls among older adults and individuals with Parkinson's disease. Again, it's really important to say that it's reducing the likelihood of being a faller and reducing the frequency of falling in those two populations. However, this perturbation training is not compared to other types of training that are done, more typical balance training. So the authors encourage comparison studies to be done in the future. The next paper is entitled Descriptive Data Analysis, Examining How Standardized Assessments Are Used to Guide Post-Acute Discharge Recommendations for Rehabilitation Services After Stroke. The authors are Margarita Bland and her colleagues who come from programs in physical and occupational therapy and departments of neurology and radiology at Washington University in St. Louis, the Barnes-Jewish Hospital Rehabilitation Services, and the Department of Occupational Therapy at MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. I want you to think about this study because we're going to refer to it in several of the future articles that I'm going to discuss for this issue. The authors were interested in actually examining what the PT and OTs do during their initial assessment of patients in the hospital if there's any relationship between their initial recommendations for discharge and what actually happens. So both PT and OT at Washington University School of Medicine both the physical and occupational therapists use a standardized assessment. The authors looked at a database from 2010-2013 to look at this particular question. What I found interesting was the PTs and OTs do an assessment on the first day, and at that time they make discharge recommendations. In looking at the records, it turned out that less than 5% of those discharge recommendations that were made on the first day were changed by the PT or OT, although they had the opportunity. So it was just an interesting, I'm not making a judgment, I'm just saying that it's an interesting finding. The only records that were examined were those where both the physical and occupational therapists made the same discharge recommendation for future services. I think one of the things about this particular standardized assessment is that it takes about 20 minutes to administer. But it does talk about both impairments and activities of daily living. The occupational therapist assessment takes up to 40 minutes to complete. So this is a really carefully described paper, and basically what the authors conclude is that in the patients who were post-stroke, that they can be classified into four meaningful groups. 
A, B, C, and D, and that there's some relationship between that classification and their discharge recommendations. So the authors are really excited about this as a first step in being able to predict discharge recommendations and really believe that additional work should be done in this area. From a clinical standpoint, it really shows the responsibility of the PT and OT in the acute care setting for making this kind of a decision. And then for the educators, how do you prepare a student to make this important recommendation when they're novice clinicians? So I thank the authors for this really interesting article. The next article is entitled Predicting Six-Minute Walking Distance in Recipients of Lung Transplantation, Longitudinal Study of 108 Patients. The authors are led by Edwin J. Von Audra Kem and colleagues. They are from the Research and Innovation Group in Healthcare and Nursing at Hansi University of Applied Science in Groningen, the Netherlands the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, the Department of Pulmonary Disease, the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, and Thorax Center, University Medical Center, Groningen. This is a paper that looks at a longitudinal study of 108 patients who had lung transplantation. The group was able to follow 82 of the patients all the way up through 12 months post-transplant. The six-minute walk distance was used as sort of, I'm going to say, a success marker. What they did was they looked at predicted walking distance for adults who were healthy, and they decided that if the patients did 82% of that six-minute walk distance or better, then they were no longer indicating an impairment. Basically, what they did was look at a number of variables, but again, the primary outcome was six-minute walk distance. And again, I encourage you to look at the paper because I think it's really very thoughtful and exciting. What they showed was that only 42% of the population reached this threshold of 82% or better in their six-minute walk distance one year post-transplant. The exciting component to that is they found that the quadricep strength was a directly modifiable variable that predicted six-minute walk distance. So the suggestion in this paper is that perhaps future studies should look at working with persons post-lung transplant to increase muscle strength. So this is an exciting role the physical therapist may play in the long run for this patient population. The next paper is entitled Intermanual transfer effect in young children after training in a complex skill, mechanistic, pseudo-randomized, pretest, post-test study. The authors are led by Sitska Rokema and her colleagues from the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and Center of Human Movement Sciences, the University Medical Center, Groningen, the Netherlands. This is a really novel paper. First of all, the sample is very small, that of 48, and the mean age is five years, and these are children who are without disability. The question was, can you teach a complex task 
to one upper extremity and end up with the other upper extremity learning the task, all right? So can there be a transfer from one side to the other? They used a prosthetic simulator. The children came in for five training sessions. The bottom line is that although there were only five training sessions, it appears compared to the control group that the experimental group decreased movement time on the uninvolved or the untrained limb after five sessions. So what does this mean to clinical practice? Well, think about being able to perhaps train a task in one upper extremity and see that it transfers to the other in even young children. So obviously there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I think it's a really exciting beginning principle that needs to be explored. The next paper is entitled Walking Dynamics in Pre-Adolescence with and Without Down Syndrome. The first author is Jian Wan Wu. She and her colleagues are from the Department of Kinesiology and Health, Georgia State University, Atlanta, Georgia. This is a really great paper for those of you who are interested in motor control and have biomechanical expertise. The authors used a biomechanical model of a pendulum to represent the thigh shank and a spring to represent the contraction of muscles. They developed a ratio which they call the KG ratio, which I'm not going to attempt to explain, but they do a really nice job in the paper showing its derivation and describing what it means. They were interested in using this biomechanical model to look at children with and without Down syndrome. And certainly in the literature, we find reports that children with Down syndrome have, I hate this word, low tone. I'm going to say instead, lower level of muscle contraction or co-contraction when asked to hold their body up against gravity. So the authors were interested in exploring that sort of muscle stiffness as well as looking at the effect of walking speed on the child's ability to activate a muscle. So it's a very complicated experiment. The children were tested on the treadmill. As I said before, there are children with and without Down syndrome. And basically, when they looked at this model, they were really trying to quantify coordination as well as the components of muscle contraction. What they found was that when they looked at their kg ratio during regular walking speed on the treadmill, there was not a difference between the children with or without Down syndrome. But when they asked the children to walk as fast as possible, they found a difference between the two groups. That went away when they loaded the ankle of the children with Down syndrome. So there's a really thoughtful discussion about what role these kinds of findings could play in clinical practice and the kind of research that needs to be done in the future exploring motor coordination in children with Down syndrome. The next paper is entitled Construct Validity of the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure in Persons with Tendon Injury and Dupuytren Disease. The authors include Lucella A.W. Van de Ven Stevens and her colleagues from the Department of Rehabilitation, Radboud University Medical Center, Nijmegen, the Netherlands. This is another thoughtful paper looking at a new outcome measure entitled the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. And I think we reduce it down to COPM because there's a lot of comparisons that are done in this study. The authors were interested in looking at self-reports that measure activity limitations. 
So they compared their new tool to the disabilities of arm, shoulder, and hand, which many of you know as the DASH, and the Michigan Hand Outcomes Questionnaire, which is known as the MHQ. These are all three self-report. The DASH and the MHQ, in addition to looking at patient performance, also look at activity limitations. So the authors were interested in developing a new tool that looked at activity limitations in the areas of self-care, occupational and household activities, and leisure. So they were trying to extend the measurement of the impact of hand limitations on participation. So I encourage you to look at the study. They support their hypothesis that this new tool has construct validity. The next paper is entitled Inter-Rater Reliability of AMPAC Six Clicks, Basic Mobility and Daily Activity Short Forms. The authors are Diane Jetty and her colleagues who come from physical therapy program at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Rehabilitation and Movement Science, University of Vermont, Burlington, Vermont. Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department, Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And then finally, the School of Public Health, Boston University Medical Campus in Boston. I think some of you are aware of this six clicks. It's certainly gotten a lot of press recently, but I'm going to remind you that this is really a short form. The six clicks are short forms that were created from the activity measure for post-acute care instrument, AMPAC, that was developed by the researchers at Boston University. This six clicks instrument looks at basic mobility such as walking and moving from one position to another. The instrument assesses daily activities such as dressing and toileting. So the advantages of these instruments include the following. They are quickly completed, they provide discrete data, and you can complete by direct observation or using clinical judgment. Now, I ask you to go back and think about our earlier paper where we talked about the research that was being done at WashU by Bland et al. What we see is their tools were 20 minutes for the physical therapist to complete and up to 40 minutes for the occupational therapist to complete. So my suggestion is the group at WashU work with the group at Cleveland Clinic and maybe we can get more clinicians to use standardized tools, perhaps if they're shorter in time. The purpose of this study was to look at the reliability of the six clicks. So basically, inter-rater reliability, so two therapists, either two physical or two occupational therapists, were assessed by examining reliability. And basically, the ICCs for the AMPAC total scores were extremely high. This adds to the importance of physical therapists using an assessment tool in the acute care setting to predict discharge, much like what we saw, again, in the Bland et al. study. So thank you for this paper. The next paper is entitled Development and Validity of the Questionnaire of Patient Experiences in Post-Acute Outpatient Physical Therapist Settings. The authors are Francesc Medina. Mayor Pakes and her colleagues from the Department of Physical Therapy, University of Morcia, Morcia, Spain, Central Unit of Anatomy, Catholic University of San Antonio, Morcia, 
and Department of Physical Therapy, Miguel Hernandez, University of Elche, Alicante, Spain. We've now seen two papers that talk about using assessment tools in the acute care setting. These authors address the need to develop an assessment tool that looks at experience in post-acute outpatient physical therapy settings. One of the first things that I think was a novel to me was that there's a difference between patient satisfaction and experience. And these authors were really interested in looking at experience, which is related to how the patient has responds to what happens to them during their care and the extent to which the person's needs were met versus satisfaction, which is how do people feel about those things. So this is a study that really is interested in developing a tool to evaluate experience in the outpatient setting, in the acute care site. The authors do a spectacular job in this paper. I really encourage those of you who are interested in developing assessment tools to look at the care in which these authors took in talking about the development of this questionnaire and what they conclude after looking at more than 450 participants in three different centers is that the questionnaire has good test reliability and the scales have internal consistency. So in their discussion, they talk about what this tool can be used for. And again, I think we usually think about assessment tools as outcome measures to make an individual patient decision. But these authors also say that the healthcare manager interested in an overview of a service can use the global measures for this tool or that if they were interested in a deeper analysis of patient experience, each scale can be used to identify specific aspects of the service to improve. Again, I think this is a very thoughtful paper, and I thank the authors for submitting it. The next paper is entitled Stroke Impact Scale Version 2, Validation of the French Version, and the authors include Sylvia Kale and her colleagues. They're from the University of Fresh-Comté, Besançon, France, the Department of Rehabilitation, University of Besançon, and University Hospital of Dijon in Dijon, France. As many of you know, it's important to translate assessment tools into the language that the patients are able to understand. This is an example of that translation, but the authors have gone beyond that. They have done an excellent job demonstrating that the translation is, in fact, valid. So this is, again, a very thoughtful paper. It uses more than 250 patients to really determine whether this tool is, in fact, a useful tool in the French version. So, again, I think it serves as a good template for those of you who are interested in doing translation of assessment tools. The final paper in the issue is a perspective, and the title of this perspective is A Staged Approach for Rehabilitation Classification, Shoulder Disorders. The authors are Phil McClure and Lori Michener, and they are from the Department of Physical Therapy, Arcadia University in Glenside, Pennsylvania, and the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy, USC, Los Angeles. I'm going to do a little side note because I know these, Lori Michener, worked with Phil McClure when she was getting her Ph.D. here in Philadelphia. So it's nice to see that they've remained collaborators regardless of location. 
This is a really fun paper for those of you who are interested in musculoskeletal disorders or classification. And certainly, Dr. McClure is known for his expertise related to shoulder function, and Dr. Michener has certainly gained prominence in recent years. What they propose is rather than just classifying patients based on pathoanatomic diagnosis, they also propose adding into that diagnostic category the ability to look at rehabilitation classification based on tissue irritability and identified impairments. So I think you'll enjoy reading this paper. The proposal is to try to make a clear, straightforward diagnostic classification. So certainly this is a great one for future research areas. So with that, I conclude. I hope that you have a wonderful May, whether you're in winter or spring, and I look forward to talking to you next month. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org, and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.